Uh, we need your spirit this morning to help show us the truths of Psalm 2, to help us believe the message of Psalm 2, and for this to lead us into worship. So would you give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach your word this morning? Uh, would we come to this looking uh, to be instructed, looking to be led, uh, and would you lead us into worship of your son, Jesus Christ? God, we need your help to do this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, anyone in here, would you consider yourself a rebel by nature? Like, let me see some hands. If you'd say, hey, I'm a rebel by nature. Okay, we got a few people. I know there's probably a few more because true rebels would be thinking, you tell me to raise my hand. I raise my hand, right? Okay, so there's a few more of you out there. But, you know, some of you would say, yeah, look, I'm just, I'm a rebel by nature. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's just something in it that's just like, I just kind of want to stick it to the man, right? Someone tells you, hey, go left. You just naturally go right. Or someone, you know, they can tell you, what do they say, stand up. You say, no, I'm going to sit down, right? It just doesn't matter. Now, in all, in all honesty, I am actually more, I would consider myself more of a rule follower. So I, I get this kind of rebellious itch every now and then. But pretty much if there's a right way to do things, I'm just going to do it that way, right? Somebody says, do this. I'm just going to do that. That's just kind of how it works for me. Now, I think... One of the, the clearest examples of this, imagine, imagine you're going to, uh, let's say, Target, right? Maybe another store, but let's be honest, you're probably at Target. So imagine you're at Target, and as you're walking up to the building, there's two doors, right? There's an entrance, and there's an exit. Now, I've been there where I've watched people walk up to the exit doors, and I think in my mind what are you doing? Like, it says exit. Like, for the life of me, I can't figure out. It's like, I know we may have to walk 20 more steps, but they tell us to go in the entrance. We walk in the entrance. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you see exit, and you say, I don't mind if I do enter in the exit, right? That's just this rebellious nature in some of us. And, and I think for the most part, some of that stuff's pretty harmless, right? You go in the exit, whatever. I tell you to raise your hand, you don't raise your hand, whatever. I mean, some of this stuff can be kind of silly. It can be cute. It's whatever. Some of us just have this rebellious streak in us. But the interesting thing is that while some of that's fairly harmless, I think the Bible actually, what it communicates is that at the core, all of us are rebels, at the core, there's not some people who just follow all the rules and some people who rebel. The, the Bible says, no, everyone is actually rebellious. The Bible says even the, even the straightest laced person in this room this morning, at the soul level, you're actually a rebel. And while I kind of make light of some of that, the, the Bible actually speaks at a much deeper level, and it shows that there's actually a big problem with our rebellion. With us being rebels, that there's a, a problem there. And I think that's what we're going to see from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we're going we're gonna to look at how the Lord reigns over the entire earth. That he is king over all things, but that his created being, the, the pinnacle of his creation, you and I, all human beings, have rebelled. And so what we're going to find out is how God responds to his rebels. Right? If all of creation has rebelled from him, how is God going to act? How will he treat his rebellious creation? And I think that question is very important if it's true that you and I are rebels. We need to know how does God respond to my rebellion. So we're going to look at that in Psalm 2. But let me, let me quickly make one note here on, before we get into Psalm 2, just the 
how we, how we read the Psalms. All right, so some of you, maybe uh, as you've read through the Old Testament or specifically the Psalms, uh, it can be kind of confusing at times, right? Like sometimes we'll read, especially the Old Testament, and you'll think, okay, is this for me? Who is this talking about? Is this just for Israel? Is this now kind of for America? We get these kind of weird views, and we don't really know what to do with some of the Old Testament. So let me just say a, a brief word about kind of the context of Psalm 2, which I think will help us as we dive in. You know, one of the lucky things is that uh, in Acts chapter 4, it actually quotes Psalm 2. And it says that King David, the king of Israel at the time, wrote this psalm. So we don't know that in the Psalms, but Acts tells us that David wrote this. Now many people have kind of suggested, well, he probably wrote this to be what's called an enthronement psalm, which since all of us don't know what that is, me included, uh, I looked it up, and basically what an enthronement psalm is, is is that when a new king would come in, when he would be enthroned, he'd be given the the king of the land, uh, there would be these psalms that people would read over them. It was kind of like a blessing or or something over them to say, we're going to make this big psalm, this promise that God loves you, is with you, and will lead through you, as kind of this blessing over their kingship. Now, One commentator brought up that this doesn't make much sense because if you listen to Jenna when she she recited Psalm 2, you heard words like the the king is going to lead the nations. Like this king is going to be over all the earth. Every nation, every king and every ruler would be subdued under this one king. And this commentator James Johnston says, there is no king in Israel that had this much power. No king in Israel actually fulfilled this psalm. It's just simply too big. David had a great kingdom. He didn't subdue the entire earth. Solomon had this big kingdom. All these kings maybe tasted it. But he said Psalm 2 leaves you wanting something more. He said Psalm 2 cannot be fulfilled with any of the kings of Israel, but it's pointing us to something else. And so the question, I think, when we read these psalms is, is who fulfills this on the, the grandest scale? Who fulfills this kingship over the entire earth? And I think when we zoom out, we're going to find an ultimate king. A king that doesn't just lead one geographical location, but will fulfill this psalm. And so let's look through Psalm 2. And I just want us to see the timeless truths that it carries. It's truths that were just as true for David as they are for us today. And I think that this truth is going to lead us to see that the Lord reigns through his king. So here's how we're going to do it. If you've got your eyes on Psalm three, we're gonna, or Psalm 2, we're going to break it up into three parts. Uh, you can maybe do four, but for sake of time, I'm going to do three. So verses 1 through 3 is kind of a section, and that's going to uh, show us the rebellion. Verses 4 through 9... We're going to see the reaction, and then verses 10 through 12, we'll see the refuge. So we'll see the rebellion, the reaction, and the refuge. So look with me, starting in verse 1. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the psalm begins, hey, why are the nations raging? Why are the peoples plotting in vain against God 
and his anointed. In other words, he's not setting up two different types of people. He's saying, why is everyone rebelling? Everyone is enraged at God. Everyone, all the peoples in the land, all the nations on this earth are rebelling against God and his anointed, which we'll get to in a moment. He goes on to say, the kings of the earth, the rulers of all these nations are kind of conspiring against God. Now, uh, I didn't really know what that meant right away. I didn't know who are the kings and the rulers, but again, lucky for us, the New Testament quotes this. And in Acts 4, it says that when, when King Herod and Pontius Pilate decided to kill Jesus, Acts 4 says that is beginning to fulfill the psalm. The kings and the rulers of the earth are against God and his anointed. So keep that in mind. We'll keep getting to that. I think the psalm's already starting to filter us in towards Jesus. But before we get there, I think it's important for us to note in verse 1, we see the widespread, universal rebellion of people against God. When he says the nations and the people, he's saying this isn't just one geographical location, one specific people group. It's not one type of personality. It's not one type of personal sin that God doesn't like. It says that everyone is rebellious. Everyone is enraged. Everyone is fighting against God. And I I think for us today, we need to let that maybe sink in a little bit. Like, have you ever just pondered, just thought about the fact that everyone is rebellious against God? I think it's easy for us sometimes in the church to think, you know, there, there's certain types of people that rebel against God. There's certain types of actions that rebel against God. There's certain philosophies that are really against God. Certain religions that are really against God. But Providence this morning, what Psalm 2 shows us is that everyone is against God. It says all the nations, all the peoples in the earth from the beginning of time. And if you, and if you say, well, man, I don't know if Psalm 2 clearly shows that. Well, all you have to do is flip to the New Testament you go to the book of Romans, the first three chapters, you know the, the message he's communicating? Everyone has rebelled against God. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're a good church kid, you've rebelled against God. If you're a staunch atheist, you've rebelled against God. If you are a, a religious person, you've rebelled against God. If you're an addict, you've rebelled against God. He even goes so far to say, look, if you are the quote-unquote innocent person in the middle of Africa, he says you still have rebelled against God. He says, everyone on earth has rebelled, which honestly for me this week was oddly kind of hard to swallow news, right? Like you're getting told, okay, you've rebelled against God, and it's also simultaneously a little bit of good news because what that does is it puts each and every one of us on the exact same footing, right? Each and every one of us. There's not some good people, some bad people, and some really bad people. It is everyone rebelling against God. You know, the, the problem is not that some of us haven't gone to church, that some of us haven't learned how to live the Christian life, that we haven't thought certain thoughts. The, the, the core problem the Bible says is that you and I and all human beings were created in the image of God to be with God. 
Do you know that? That you, your purpose in life was to be with God, to know him, to follow him, to love him, to be loved by him, to walk with him. Do you know, your purpose was to help rule the earth with God. Like that's why he created human beings. Our goal was to reflect glory to God by living with him on earth. And the reality is that all of us have said no. We've all said no. Right? We've chosen pride and greed, sex and careers, substances and self-glory, self-praise. And we have desired to set up our own kingdoms, to have our own praise, to have our own fame. And we've said no to God. If you have a pulse in the room this morning, you're a rebel. Right? It's not just the ones that raised their hands. It's even the ones who said, I feel like a rule follower. You're still a rebel against God. And, and as I was thinking about this this week, I think honestly for me, one of my greatest probably underlying struggles uh, is that I don't necessarily believe that about myself. Right? I mean, maybe some of you who, you didn't raise your hand, you think, well, I'm a rule follower. I'm a pretty good person. I've been in church for 25 years, right? Like, I'm not that bad. You know, I think, look, I'm a, I'm a hardworking Midwestern American, right? I'm, I try to be good to people. I'm nice. I try to do good things, whatever. And when I see something like this, I kind of think, yeah, 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 I'm a sinner. I know, blah, blah, blah. But at the core level, I'm really not that bad. And then I start to let the Bible press in on me a little bit. God's word press in. And, and I read things like, you know, Andrew, you're to be the type of husband that consistently lays down his life for the good and the thriving and the health of your wife. Always. Right? And I think, okay, well, maybe most times I can try to do that, but, but always. Okay, so can't check that box, right? The Bible says, hey, Andrew, you, you can't show partiality towards people. Right? You can't give certain people more attention because they're easier to get along with or they have more money or they have something to offer you. You, you show nobody partiality. And I look at my life and I think, okay, can't check that box. Right? I hear Jesus say, look, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I think about my heart and I like receiving things, right? I mean, I like receiving money. I like receiving compliments. I like receiving accolades. Like my heart wants glory more than it wants to give glory. And the Bible says that's part of the core problem of my heart. You know, the Bible says I was created to live a life fully giving God glory at all times. And I look at my life and I see rebellion. I see a heart that wants glory more than he wants to give glory. I see a heart that wants things more than he wants to give things. I see a heart that will show partiality, will not love my wife. I see, and the, the crazy thing is, that's literally just things I thought of in the last like three days. So, you know, that's not even to mention the things that I walked in before I was saved by Jesus. And so what I realized is that in my eyes, in the world's eyes, I may be a good person. And in God's eyes, I'm a rebel. He wanted, to be, he wanted me to be with him, and I said, no thanks. Providence, if we're going to move forward in the gospel and we're going to understand God and his relationship to us in deeper ways, we have to come to the realization that we are the rebels that have walked away from God. Each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed, how you've lived your life. We have all walked 
from God and his plan in our life. There is no innocent person. There is no good enough person. There's no good enough person in this building, in our city, in your family, in the jungles of Burma or the deserts of Africa. There is no person who is good enough. The first three verses show us that all the peoples have rebelled. You and I have rebelled. And so the next thing that the psalm's going to go to is, well, what's God's reaction for rebellious creation? For his people that have walked away, what will God do? I would think maybe freak out a little bit, right? Maybe get a little bit upset, maybe even get a little bit worried, right? You got 7.6 billion people on the earth all against God. Do you think he's kind of freaking out at all? Well, look at verse 4. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now when I read that, that seemed a little bit odd to me. I don't know if that seems odd to you. I, I hear this huge rebellion going on and it says God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He holds them in derision, which was another word I didn't know this week. But it just means that he's, he's basically mocking the people. He's laughing and he's mo- he, it's a mockery. It doesn't make sense. He does not so much as lift a finger in worry or anxiety. He sits and he laughs. I think the psalmist is trying to highlight for us that the, the sovereignty and magnitude of God is so much greater than we can imagine. So much greater than we can imagine. I think we see this through two things. The first one is just the idea that that he sits in the heavens. You know, while, while kings, it says, of these like little nations all over earth are, are rebelling and they're all conspiring and freaking out, the psalmist wants to remind us where God is. You, you know, when, when all the things seem chaotic, when, when it seems like people are against God on earth, the psalmist wants you to remember he is still seated in the heavens. God is still sovereign over all things. He is still more powerful and bigger than anything else. While little kings are rebelling, the great king is still on his throne. But second, I I just love that it doesn't show one ounce of worry from God. He, He doesn't even flinch to think, maybe they will overthrow me. He doesn't flinch at all. Instead, he laughs. He he mocks them, which I know sounds a little bit weird. We don't usually think about God mocking people, right? But I think it's not so much this kind of like sinister laugh and he's like pointing at you and laughing and mocking you. But I think it's more of a, a king who kind of chuckles at the foolishness of what his people are doing. So uh, just saying, I, I've got a, a six-month-old son, right? And if you have kids, you know. So I got a six-month-old kid, and there will be times where I'm, I'm literally like helping him with something. I'm like changing his diaper, or I'm holding him from something, or I'm doing something for his good, and he will literally just like throw a fit, right? Like he just, he squirms, he kicks, he starts screaming. And as a dad, I'm not like holding him thinking, you dummy, like, why are you so stupid? No, but I'm chuckling, I can laugh because I'm thinking, look, if you only knew, right? Like if you only knew that I'm actually helping you right now. If you only knew that if you just stayed calm, I'd protect you from so much more. If you only knew how powerful I am compared to you, that, that you really, your kicking and screaming has literally no effect on me. And I think that God sees our rebellion as foolish in a similar way. He's looking at his creation. 
His creation that he wants to protect, that he wants to love, that he wants to care for, kicking and screaming and rebelling from him. And he chuckles at the thought that we might be able to overthrow the Lord Almighty. God is not dismayed. He is not worried with what's going on in the world. He is not scared that the world will overthrow him. He is sovereign. He is seated on the throne. But he will respond. He will do something about it. Look at verse 5 through 9. It says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten me, begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the scene that the psalmist is describing is all the kings, all the peoples in the earth are rebelling against God, and God says, This is how I'm going to respond. I'm going to set my king on Zion. And that king will be so powerful and so ultimate that I'm going to end up giving him the nations. The entire earth is going to be his. He will rule and reign and he will not be a mere man. He will be my son. God is saying, I'm going to send my son to rule the nations. God is telling the nations, and I think God is telling us this morning, you can rebel if you want to, but my king will reign. You can run if you want to, but my king will reign. There will be no amount of rebellion and sin and brokenness in the world that will continue forever. He says, at some point, the king will come and he will judge the earth. The nations will have to answer to him. He will be seated on his throne, and this king will be the son of God. Now, once again, I think it's helpful if we imagine we're zoomed out a little bit, and we're thinking, okay, who is the son? Who is the psalm pointing to? Well, as we look in the New Testament, it also quotes this verse when Jesus steps onto his kind of earthly ministry, and he gets baptized, and you know what God says to him? You are my son. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 and 5 says, This son, Jesus, is greater than the angels. He's greater than any other man. He's greater than any other religious figure because he is the son of God. And in Acts 13, Paul is preaching and he says, This this passage became completely fulfilled when Jesus raised from the dead. The the son took his place on the throne when God raised Jesus from the dead. So if we put all this together, the rebellion was fulfilled when Herod and Pilate killed Jesus. He died for the rebellion, but Paul says he rose again from the dead to be the true everlasting king, the son of God. Jesus is not dead in some grave. He is not simply a religious figure. He's not just somebody we look to. He's he's a, a king who is reigning today. Do you picture Jesus like that? When you think about your relationship with Jesus, do you picture that you're following a living king today? 
that you are united with and bound up with the Son of God who is ruling and reigning and who God says he's going to give him the entire earth. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 28. Right? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's fulfilling Psalm 2. He's saying, I will rule the nations. So providence for us. Look, we may rebel against God. You have the freedom to rebel against God. You may say that God doesn't exist. You may say that God's ways are not as good as your ways. We may live a life caring more about ourselves and our kingdom than God and his kingdom. But Psalm 2 wants you to know that does not thwart the plan, the sovereignty, and the kingship of God. You can rebel if you want to, and God says, my king will still reign. You can run away if you want to. You can live a life seeking other things if you want to. But my king is seated on his throne. God's reaction to the great rebellion is to offer his son as a sacrifice, but raise him as a victorious king. And this leads us to the end of the psalm. You see, the psalmist switches again. Now he's speaking to the people. And he's going to tell the nations, and and including us, he's going to tell us what do we do in light of our rebellion and God's king, the son. And honestly, I'll just say this before I read it. In my mind, I would have thought the psalmist says, so tough luck, right? Like you had a chance, you rebelled, my king's going to reign, sorry. But that's not what he says. Look at verse 10. It says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Do you catch the kind of underlying mercy and grace in this psalm? I mean, the psalmist basically is crying out to the nations that have rebelled against God. He's saying, look, you've run from God. His king will reign. And here's God's message to you. Come back. Right? He's crying out to the nations that have rebelled, the the kings and the rulers that have killed his son. And he's saying, come back and kiss the son. God's saying, I know you didn't want me. I know you ran from me, but you can come home. I mean, can you believe the good news of this psalm. I think about verse 12. He says, look, anyone who stays rebellious will face the wrath of Jesus, the Son of God. But for any who kiss the Son, any who come back, you find your refuge in Him. The only refuge that we have from the wrath of God against our sin and rebellion is the Son of God. He's the only refuge that we have. And it's amazing that the plan of the gospel was that God gave up Jesus to be killed by the rebels so that he could be a refuge for the rebels. You see the beauty of that? God gave his son for us so that we could find refuge in him. And so, Providence, I think that the application, the call for us today is kiss the son. You know, and I know it sounds kind of weird. We think about that. And you think, man, I got to kiss the sun. What does that mean? But I know it's foreign, but I think what the psalmist is trying to say is, look, come and submit to him. Trust in him. Find your refuge in him. Let him be who he is, the king. You know, I think sometimes we get um, 
maybe evangelism, a little bit odd. We get a little bit off sometimes as we, we, we preach this message and we tell our neighbors, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta come to Jesus. He's gonna, he's gonna give you a better life, right? Like you're gonna find joy in life and all this stuff and, and it's just gonna be so much better and God just wants you so desperately so just come to him and, and to some extent that's true. That is true, but I think the, the clearer message through the Bible is, friends, you have rebelled against the God of the universe, There is a wrath against sin, but God has made a way by sending his king. The message of salvation is more trust in the king, kiss the son, submit to him, follow him. We don't just let God be the Lord of our lives. He is the Lord and we just submit under that. We just acknowledge that he is the true king because the reality is one day we will either face his wrath or we will either face him as our refuge. I was in, um, I was in Thailand a couple years ago, and I love, I, I got to talk to a guy who his parents, he's from Vietnam, and his parents are from this uh, kind of tribe in Vietnam, very remote, there wasn't a ton of people there. Uh, and, and he said that they, they didn't know, they didn't have a Bible, anything like that, they had no concept of who Jesus was. And this tribe would routinely make these sacrifices to the gods. They didn't know who the gods were. They didn't know exactly what they were supposed to do. But they would literally, they would kill their animals on a hill and they would sacrifice. Because inside of them, they knew that they needed to appease someone. They just had a sense deep inside. I think Romans 1 would say, that is a God-given thing in us. That we know there's something else. We've got to appease somebody. We've done something wrong. So he said they would routinely go and they would make these sacrifices. He said one day missionaries came into our tribe. And after a while we got to get to know them, learning languages, all this stuff. And he says eventually they came to us and they said, you know, you're making these sacrifices. You're trying to appease the gods. And he said this is what they told his parents. You're still condemned. <laughs> he said you're still facing wrath. They said because there's only one way to clear your guilt. There's only one way for you to fully be innocent. And they preached him the message of Jesus as king, as the one who came to sacrifice for them, but the one who they need to trust and follow. I think it was a great example of of Psalm 2. They're saying, look, you're still in wrath until you find refuge in Jesus. You can search for life wherever you want. You can make sacrifices however you want. You can try to be good enough however you want. And the message of Psalm 2 is you're still in wrath until you're in Jesus. I think that's the call for us this morning. Maybe for the first time for some of you, would you, as Psalm 2.12 says, kiss the sun? Would you trust in Jesus that he is the king, that one day you will face him and you will either face him in wrath or as a refuge. And for us as a church, I think this psalm is not just about salvation. That doesn't just end there, but we as a church now have to view Jesus as a living, reigning king that is the Lord of our lives. That what he says goes. That when he says move, we move. That when he says speak, we speak. That we walk with him, that we enjoy him because he is the king of the world. What if we were a church that rallied around this and just said, I mean, whatever Jesus says goes. We're going to run after the king. And Psalm 2.12 ends saying, the true blessed one, 
Remember last week we talked all about blessing, the blessed man. Psalm 2.12 says, the one who's truly blessed is the one who's in Christ. The one who's satisfied, the one who's joyful, the one who has life is the one in Christ. We are rebels that have run and Jesus has come for us. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good that you would send your only son, Jesus Christ, not just to sit on a throne, but to first come and die for us. God, that you would send Jesus to hang on a tree to pay the penalty of the, the, all of us, the rebels' guilt, so that we could be with you and walk with you and know you once more. God, I pray right now, would your spirit press this in deep for us as a church? Wherever we're at, individually right now, God, would you press in how we need to follow you in greater ways because you are the true king. God, if that's coming to you for the first time, bowing our knee to you for the first time, trusting in you for the first time, would you help that person do that this morning? God, if that's any of us who still have this rebellious streak in us, this desire to still have self-glory, self-praise, to live life our own way, God, would you kill that now? Would we find joy and life in you? Would we not be the toddler who kicks and screams, but would we trust our Father? Would we believe that your life, your hope, and your joy is greater because you are the king for the good of your people? God, would you help us do this? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.